Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. A very warm welcome to all of you here tonight. My name is Eric Nome. I'm the President and Vice-Chancellor of the LSE. I am very pleased to be here to welcome you all this evening and even more pleased to welcome the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley, back to the LSE because she's an alumna, I'm very proud to say. We are also delighted to be joined by the Honorable Esther Phillips, the Poet Laureate of Barbados. And I promise it will be a very unusual but very exciting event because I heard a little bit about the two and four. It will be a bit of poetry and a bit of a speech. It will be very, very exciting. The event has been organized by Oxfam uh, GB in collaboration with LSE's International Inequalities Institute and our Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity. Founded 80 years ago in the midst of Second World War. Today, Oxfam is, of course, a global community of people who believe in a kinder, radically better world, a world where everyone has the power to thrive, not just survive. And Oxfam works to overcome poverty by fighting the injustices and inequalities that fuel it. Our very own International Inequalities Institute brings together experts from many LSE departments and centers to lead critical and cutting edge research to understand the nature of inequality in numerous arenas across the world and to develop critical tools to address these challenges. And then the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program, or AFSI, as we call it, we love our acronyms, based at the III, another acronym, (laughs) is building a catalytic values-led global community of people who are committed to using collective leadership to work towards social and economic justice for all. Oxfam GBS enjoyed a long and productive relationship with the LSE. Oxfam's CEO, Danny Sriskandaraja, more or less. Uh, sorry, and Danny knows, I apologize already in advance. Uh, he is a visiting senior fellow at the LSE's uh, International Inequalities Institute. He was actually here physically three months. He really enjoyed that, he told me, and recently presented a new research paper on the future of international non-governmental organizations to this year's intake of our Atlantic Fellows, I understand. Really good. Oxfam are proud to have worked with the LSE, and so are we, to host this event tonight and to bring this audience the wisdom of our guests. Uh, For those of you who are users of X, you want to tweet. (laughs) The hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Barbados. The event is being recorded and will hopefully, no technical problems, uh, if there are none, be made available as a podcast, okay? So with the housekeeping out of the way, uh, let me please introduce our speakers tonight. Mia Amor Motley became Barbados' eighth and first female prime minister in May 2018, leading an historic election campaign in which her Barbados Labour Party swept all 30 seats in the Barbadian House of the Assembly, and won the highest ever share of the popular vote. She and her party repeated that trick in their re-election campaign in 2022. Uh, She was first elected to the Parliament of Barbados in September 1994. One of the youngest persons ever to be assigned a ministerial portfolio, Ms. Motley, 
was appointed Minister of Education, Youth Affairs and Culture and later served as Attorney General, Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the opposition before she became Prime Minister. Most important of all, she is an alumna, for us at least. <laughs> she is an alumna and uh, she was awarded her LLB in 1986. Uh, in addition to her responsibility as head of the government in Barbados, Ms. Motley is known throughout the world for her influential leadership on fighting climate change and financing the global transition to a sustainable economy. The Honorable Esther Phillips is the founder and director of Writers Inc. Incorporated, as well as the BIM Literary Festival and Book Fair. She's the editor of the iconic BIM, Arts for the 21st Century, and was the producer of the CBC radio program What's that you're reading? In March 2018, Esther was appointed the first Poet Laureate of Barbados and was recently reappointed to her role. Danny, who I already have mentioned, has been the Chief Executive Officer of Oxfam GB since January 2019. Prior to that, he spent six years as Secretary General of Civicus, the Global Civil Society Alliance. He's a trustee of the Disaster Emergency Committee and a visiting senior fellow. <coughs> at our triple I, or I, I, I. No more from me. Uh, I'm now delighted to hand over to our speakers tonight, and you will see it will be a double act. Uh, very exciting. Mia and Esther, please, the floor is all yours. Shh. Let her walk free unhindered into the new world. She must not see the crimson dawn and think of. Let her see only purple flowers growing from the cut rock, not hear the back breaking. She must remember only the smell of ripe plums and guavas rising from the gully, never the stink of let her gaze at the lacy leaves in the cluster of bamboo trees and not see that the branches were cut, stripped, and used for the thick pole with holes cut into the crossbars was where they, that dark spot left by jamun berries was once the stain of She's walking west of the big house, next to what she knows only as the yard. We were barely her age when Master summoned us to his quarters. We were not the same when we came back. The children born to us were never ours to love as we wanted. Master could treat them with such cruelty, sell them when he chose to. Better some had never seen the morning light. Better they'd been buried along with their navel strings under this same earth. But this girl, walking, she is one our Abrewa saw when we gathered in the late evenings, speaking over a pot of water so no one else could hear us. It was then the old wise woman whispered her vision that one day, one day, shh, 
that the girl child think it's only birds, crickets, grasshoppers, the wind is slipping through the cuscus that she hears, never the sounds of our shh. Oh, my ancestors, so late for me to unwrap layer by layer this gift of your silence. But today I place my birth call over my eyes so I may see and I weep for the bones I find here, the solitary cowrie shell, a broken comb, shreds of the Osnaberg that roughened your once smooth ebony skin gave no ease to your torn flesh. I shed these tears for my oblivion, false buffer of empire that shrouded my hearing, veiled my sight, turned me, bastard child, away from my true mother. Now I unwrap the love you forced into silence, like a hedge to protect me until the time would come for safer passage. What can I give you in return in these late years, this late awakening, the pledge of my voice, my words, the rest of this walking. That first poem, the title of that is the, My Ancestors Gifted Me Their Silence, and it is addressing what I have described as this conspiracy of silence around, surrounding the subject of slavery. And I have incorporated the idea of silence in the poem, as you would have heard. And that's the young girl who's walking along a plantation road, oblivious of her history and of the fact that her female ancestors are observing her and speaking from the grave. What can I give you in return in these late years? The late awakening, the pledge of my voice. We gather today to continue the journey of allowing the voice to reign supreme. And we do so because for too long and for too many, the conspiracy of silence has diminished the horror of what our people faced for more than four centuries. We didn't control the printing presses. We didn't control the narrative. We didn't control the governments. We became independent, and we started to tell our story. Here, there, everywhere, but always in muted tones, and always as if it didn't matter. And in case I thought it was us, then I remembered last year in June when the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting took place in Rwanda, in Kigali. In the end, I couldn't attend because I had that dreaded COVID. But my colleague, the senior minister, the foreign minister at the time went. And the High Commissioner is here to attest to it. And your king, 
King Charles, delivered himself of some words that we would do well to recall. And we would do well to recall them because in his own words, he indicated that quite simply, if we are to forge a common future that benefits all of our citizens, we too must find new ways to acknowledge our past. Quite simply, this is a conversation whose time has come. And he referred in that conversation to the example of what was happening in Canada with respect to the reconciliation conversation between the indigenous people and the government. And he referred to the pain that slavery brought for centuries. And he had the courage to ask that this conversation should take place. I wasn't there. And therefore, I relied on the media to tell his story. But not even the media wanted to tell his story. And that cemented for me the difficulty that we confront. A future king of England speaking as head of the Commonwealth, acknowledging in Africa that this was a conversation whose time had come. And it did not make the front pages of the very famous British literary establishment, which is known to cover everything. <laughs> I say this because these conversations are painful. And these conversations may offend some, but they ought not to, because we are mature. And we must have the capacity to have mature conversations because we are not children. And that ability to have conversations, even when we are directly complicit, must never escape us. That was the example of Nelson Mandela in his determination that there should be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that would allow people the opportunity to share and to breathe. And I say today that the silence is anchored not just in a conspiracy, but it is a silence that is born out of shame. For many of our people, the shame is too great, a burden to carry. I cannot count the number of times that when people watch or are about to watch movies, some leave the room. 12 years as a slave, Amistad, you can go on and on. And there are so many Caribbean people that I know who say, I simply cannot watch it. The notion that persons could be treated as subhuman, the notion that persons were chattel, the notion that you could have not just lashes on your back, but your nose would be slit and your face burnt, and that that was a legitimate penalty in the 1661 slave code passed by the Parliament of Barbados, the Parliament that I now have the honor and privilege to lead, but the Parliament that passed the first ever codification of slavery in the Western world. 
Many countries would come to follow Barbados's legislation. The British Atlantic colonies, many else in the Caribbean. And those that didn't mimic the legislative framework directly used it as the basis for the control of human beings for the next few centuries. We talk today of atrocities, as we must. But we talk about it as if it is new to the Western world, without recognizing that the Western world was built as we know it on these atrocities. And we do not have the luxury of changing the course of history, but we do have the solemn obligation to right the wrongs and to allow people to be able to breathe and to live in a space. And not until then, not until then, will our relationships and our capacity to manage this difficult environment within which we find ourselves, not until then will it change. This next poem is set in the 16th, 17th century, and it was particularly difficult for me to write. As a mother myself, I try to imagine what our enslaved great-great-grandmothers must have endured during their childbearing years. How did they handle the natural instinct to love and protect their young? The name of the boy in this poem is Adafo, meaning survival. Hard love. She cannot stop her waters breaking, stanch the blood that comes with the birth of her son, or the flow of milk from her breasts. She holds him in her arms and feels the spirits of his father's hover near, persistent. He is Adafo, Adafo, that is his name. She breathes the baby's name into his ear, into his spirit, so he may not forget. But even now, she knows what cannot be. She must not fetter her son with tenderness. So as he grows, she flexes his feet and ankles to bear the weight of ball and chain rubs her calloused hands down the soft skin of his back to ready him for whippings that will come. She lets the weight of her arms fall heavy on his neck as she hugs him. The iron yoke may be a collar he will wear. Some evenings she stands him near the cooking fire. She knows he must endure the searing of the branding iron deep into his flesh when he is marked, not with the name his fathers gave him, but as the property of white enslavers. For days she is silent. They must become accustomed to absence, a shadowing of some future time when the other is etched only in memory. These days in the fields, the sun darkens. Even the full moon hides among shadows. The white men have come like wild beasts on the hunt, and she knows, she knows. 
Then just before daybreak one morning, Master sent for the boy, he must come. She whispers her final words to her son. You are Adfu. Remember your name. There's fear in his eyes, but also something deeper. My name is Adfu, he whispers back. And he's gone. Thirteen years old. Gone. He will not see how the bitter-tasting vine she's used to bind her toothful heart unravels, nor her red-rimmed eyes when all that she's held in breaks loose. But even now, she knows what cannot be. She must not fetter her son with tenderness. Remember your name. There is no institution in the Western world that has endured greater pain and tribulation than those who were either the subject of genocide or those whose bodies were enslaved. And we have come to take it for granted because the children of those who were the victims, some have done well and some appear to be making it. But when we stop and study how families have been torn apart, and we understand in the case of slavery, the source of it. They were torn apart in Africa. They were torn apart in the Middle Passage. They were torn apart on arrival. They were torn apart even on plantation. And centuries of being torn apart, as we've just heard, conditioned mothers and fathers to prepare their children for the inevitable. To understand that even the name that they gave them would not survive unless they kept it deep in their bosom to pass on to another generation. And after a while, not even that survived because there were just too many generations for it to pass down. We have healing to do. And the families of the black world in particular, in the Americas, started with the tragedy and travesty that many just didn't make it across the waters. The brothel report, which was released in June of this year in this country, speaks specifically to those numbers. In the case of my own country, 454,342 people were said to have embarked from Africa to Barbados. 375,874 people arrived. 78,000. 468 that were sent to come to Barbados just did 
not make it. And my friends, that death in the middle passage haunts us. But then there were those who were simply born into slavery. 151,447. Leaving a total, it is estimated, of 605,789 people who were affected by the institution of slavery and the transatlantic slave code, slave trade. If I were to take the entire region, including the US and the British, Dutch, and French overseas territories, if I were to look at all of the transatlantic slave trade and not that of the UK, we would see that the numbers suggest in this report, and they vary because of the quality of the materials that exist, but this report suggests 9,294,183 people left Africa to come to this, what was called the New World. 8,073,165 made it with 1,221,018 dying in the Atlantic Ocean. Another 10,607,825 people were born into slavery. And a total, therefore, of 19,902,008 people, one third of the population of this nation. We have to determine what matters to us. And I want to share and suggest with you this afternoon that I don't speak of that which we are not prepared to do in our own country. Last week, Tuesday, in the space where Lord Nelson stood, even before he stood in Trafalgar Square here, we replaced his monument with a monument paying tribute to the family, our family. Because less than feet away from where that monument stands, families were separated when they arrived from across the Atlantic. We believe that that monument is only but one aspect of what we must do. One month before, in Golden Square Freedom Park, a park that commemorates our own modern uprising in 1937 to bring honor and basic rights to our people, we launched a One Family Initiative. Because as a co-chair of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals of the Champions, I am deeply aware that as much as we set out to fight poverty, there are more people in most countries outside of the circle of poverty. But the difficulty comes in the belief that it is only the obligation of governments to get rid of poverty. We believe fundamentally that the problems are so deep and so systemic, and it is not only economic poverty, but poverty of mind, poverty of spirit, the other aspects of poverty that downpress and suppress people that must equally be fought. And we as a government have determined in my own country 
that if one out of every five people lie below the line of poverty, then the corollary is four out of every five are not. And that what is required is the unleashing and the unlocking of that communal effort, irrespective of burden initially, because we are where we are today. And we must work with each other. In my humble opinion, not just in Barbados, but across the world, to create a movement that sees people, that feels people, that hears people, that understands that when all others and all other things are gone, the family ought to be that nurturing unit that takes our children and helps shape them, that roots them in the values of determining what is right and what is wrong, that speaks to them of, to the fact that there is nothing to be gained by retribution, but that what is required is never to forget, but always to aspire to moral strategic leadership. Not because it sounds good to say so, but because it is necessary to reduce conflict and to work together on the things that matter in this our world. We believe that that conversation that anchors the family, therefore, is one of the most important conversations we must have. And we recognize that the values of the modern world, particularly in the Western world, do not necessarily reinforce those values. And in fact, reinforce a level of individualism that discounts the benefit of those values. And between individualism and consumerism, the character and integrity of the families that are necessary to reinforce resilience are continuously being undermined. As to what and how we move from here equally requires mature conversation. This poem is dedicated to the memory of George Floyd who, as we know, was killed in the Minnesota in 2020 under horrific circumstances. The title, He Called for Mama. He called for Mama. And every mama of every race, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Native American, rose up to answer the call. But one outran them all. She and her kind were used to running from the rabid slave hunter, vicious dogs, through the underground railway from every street where Jim Crow deemed them nothing but worthless vagabonds. <coughs> How many nights in her head has she urged her son, run, run, if they catch you, they'll kill you. Take the back streets and alleys and run, run on home. Today she hears him calling, Mama, and she is confused. Where is his man's voice? What terror could so grip him that he is a child again? And she's running, running, until she reaches that narrow but eternal bridge she cannot cross. And there he lies, all six foot six of him 
I can't breathe. Crushed by the very thing they'd run from all their lives, 400 years of hate in a white man's knee on the neck of her son. Nine minutes, 29 seconds, until he's still. She knows this kind of stillness. She's seen it many times. She's holding his hand now. Come on, son. And as they turn to go, they hear a sound as of many waters or a mighty rushing wind, millions, millions marching around the globe. And the chant on the wind is beautiful. Black Lives Matter. What's his name? George Floyd. Justice now. And there's hope in their eyes as they turn to each other. One day soon. One day soon. And we're done with running. Four hundred years of hate in a white man's knee on the neck of her son. Nine minutes, twenty-nine seconds, until he's still. She knows this kind of stillness. She's seen it many times. I can talk to you about the victim that George Floyd was. And God knows the world has talked about it and risen up in defense of him on that day. The problem is they rose up too late to save him. Or I can talk to you about what would cause someone to believe that you can literally constrain the breathing of another human being for nine minutes and 29 seconds and not expect something bad to happen. It is on the latter that I want us to concentrate because not until we understand what would drive that can we begin the process of completing the healing? Not until we understand what drives that can we complete the process of redemption. And redemption of those who are oppressed is perhaps one of the most important missions that we must undertake. We must never forget the past. But we must seek to heal and to allow for redemption. Because without that, we are at risk of perpetuating the behavior that will lead to it again and again. And we are seeing before our very eyes that even when people are victims, they regrettably do not necessarily learn how not to make others victims. And that is the travesty 
of human civilization. The conversations to repair the soul have not happened so that the honesty that must be brutal does not allow us to learn from our mistakes. The efforts to repair the family remain unattended as we just heard. And whether it is in the continued belief of single parent families being the best way for most of our people in the Caribbean to survive because of learned behavior for centuries, or whether it is a failure to overcome that consumerism and individualism to which I referred just now, or whether it is an inability for persons to have frank conversation without shame, without rancor, but recognizing that if we don't have those conversations, nine minutes and 29 seconds will be repeated over and over and over and over. There can be no serious conversation and healing without understanding why redemption is necessary. And for those who say, it really wasn't me, it truly wasn't you, perhaps. You can have that shaggy moment. <laughs> but the truth is that the unconscious bias which the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter pointed us to is very much permeating everything that we do. Our language. Black Friday. Girl, you're here too hard. Why you don't try and straighten it? Boy, what are you doing out in the sun so long? You know you're gonna get dark. <laughs> Any Caribbean child, regardless of English, French, Spanish, or Dutch can relate those stories to you. And you must ask yourself why. Because the institutionalization of racism became a standard for the establishment of modern, civilized America and the Caribbean. And it is up to us to deconstruct it, and it is up to us to reframe it. But we can only do that if we first acknowledge the wrongs of the past, and if we first say sorry. When Earl Lovelace wrote his book Salt, which those of you who have not read it should do, and read it, and it won the Commonwealth Book of Praise. It took him over a decade to write because the pain and the anguish in trying to express, and we're not begging for an apology, but human moral behavior demands it. And an apology doesn't work if it is insincere. It can only work if it is sincere. And it can only be sincere if there is a genuine desire to seek redemption. We have a lot of work to do. And regrettably, as you will hear me say in the next engagement, that is going to require a multifaceted approach. What is necessary, however, is that all parents 
and all people ask themselves the simple question, what could cause you to stay on top of a man's neck, a man larger than you, to stay on his neck until, until, until. And when we start to answer that question, then we will begin to deconstruct the unconscious bias and the patent acts of racism that are continued to be allowed in our midst. Recognizing that racism is not only white on black, not black on white, white on Indian, Indian on black, black on Indian, Indian on Chinese. What stops us from recognizing humanity in each other? And that's why in 2018, and consistently since then, on behalf of my nation, we call for global moral strategic leadership. Because what the world needs now more than ever is people who understand that principle must guide actions. And that principles only mean something when it is inconvenient to stand by them. Because none of us are made perfect. And therefore, there will be times when we will fall short. But it's that ability to acknowledge it and to seek redemption <coughs> that will define us as a civilization and our ability to move on to strength rather than languishing in the shadows of a disgraceful history. You heard me speak at the beginning about the silence, as the PM has also spoken about it. But the one story my siblings and I were told relative to slavery was that her great-great-grandmother was a runaway and a rebel. God bless her. <laughs> I'm still searching for her name, but I believe that she knows my name and is demanding of me that I tell her story and those of many other enslaved women. This poem is dedicated to you, great-great-grandmother, and your sisters. Wanderer, hide the outcast, betray not her that wandereth, Isaiah 16.3. They say you were a wanderer, stripped, beaten, sold from one plantation to another. Laid under the earth almost 200 years, you've never stopped your wandering through blood, veins, pathways I've yet to name, memories I still struggle to remember. What made you restless? Whisperings in your head that clashed, tumbled, surged when you could find no words, no symbols of meaning between the oppressor's utterance and your own forbidden tongue? Did you scream, howl, let the wind and rock store your anguish for some future telling? What made you walk, run, yes, dance? Was it some rhythm you could hear beside the dissonance of chain and shackle? Were you once a water dancer? 
I think of you walking the rough, lonely cart roads on moonless nights. Your hunger for freedom greater than the gnawing in your belly or fear of your pursuers. I pray that when you felt it safe to sleep, you dreamt an open road where trees offered shade from the noonday heat. The rock kept you safe from the cruel and ruthless. Time opened a window and you looked down the centuries, the long winding ages that stretched on before you. And you looked and you saw how, armed with her pen, her words and her voice, one of your own blood had started her journey back through the years to follow your footsteps, to write your true story, interpret your inarticulate cries, inscribe on your pages your acts of resistance, your courage to suffer the stripes on your back rather than wear the chains on your feet. Oh, great, great, great grandmother, I've taken my place in this seeking for justice. Foot sore and weary, may you find rest. And you looked and you saw how armed with her pen, her words, and her voice, one of your own blood had started her journey back through the years to follow your footsteps to write your story, R-I-G-H-T, to write your story. Wandering towards justice. What does that road look like? And how does that liberate us to work together to do that which humanity and our planet demands of us now? Do we go into battle with a quarter or a third or a tenth of who are eligible to fight when we need as many as possible to fight the battles of all civilization to save our planet and our biodiversity? Do we continue to retreat as war and rumors of war are replaced with with all due respect to Gregory Isaacs, the realities of war are not rumors anymore. What do we do and what does it look like? One of the significant realities of the post-George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement is that it stirred the conscience of the world. And perhaps for the first time, the world recognized that we could no longer continue to ignore the trauma of four centuries of enslavement, of four centuries of barbarism, of four centuries of denying people their very humanity. And that spawned many actions, some planned and some, as we recall, very much unplanned. Statues were torn down, apologies were made by some, Reports were commissioned, commitments were given. And it certainly took us to a place where we had not been thus far. But did it take us to where we needed to be? 
no, it hasn't. And there are a few things that we need to point out, not in acrimony, not in anger, but out of reality. Much of what was done, we appreciate the sensitivity, but in many instances, it ignored the agency of black people. It was not done after conversation. It was not done through negotiations or discussion. It was done full stop. And I want to thank those who did it because I believe that they didn't have to do it. They really didn't. I want to thank the Church of England for commissioning the study. And I want to thank them for agreeing to a 100 million pound gift. The only difficulty is that there was no conversation. And the difficulty remains that that may not in any way come to close the gap. I say all the time as we discuss climate globally that we in the region face double jeopardy. That it was our blood, sweat, and tears that financed the Industrial Revolution across Europe and in the later years with the United States of America if we move through that very seamless journey of slavery to colonialism, of empire, of imperial order. And when we recognize that, we then begin to understand that the extraction of wealth for centuries led to the enrichment of individuals, families, companies, and countries. We accept that while that transpired, there was a determination that at all costs the Industrial Revolution would drive economic activity. And many don't know that the science that we listen to with greater regularity today was equally available to the world before the end of the 19th century. Not 20th, but 19th. That what the Industrial Revolution was doing to the world would have the exact impact that it is having. That it would cause those of us who grew up listening to 96 Degrees in the Shade to begin to understand that that which was supposed to be a horrific temperature is actually now seen as a cool temperature in some parts of the world. And that we live, as I like to say now, in the age of superlatives. The hottest, the driest, the wettest. Every week we break a new record. And we do so, regrettably, with the majority of former colonies on the front line. We do so, regrettably, however, with not only the former colonies on the front line, but almost all of humanity now knows what it is to be a victim of a climate crisis. I don't speak about climate change, because change does not reflect the crisis that we are in. I say these things because we're asked 
to play our part to build resilience and to adapt to this new reality. But upon becoming independent, most of us never even had a compact. But upon emancipation, the planters received 20 million pounds. Indeed, that debt was only finally paid for in this century. And it just goes to show us almost two centuries later the significant amount that they received <coughs> as compensation for property. But it wasn't only the 20 million pounds. It was also the 27 million pounds in free labor that they received between 1834 and 1838 in the period of apprenticeship. 47 million pounds given to the benefit of the planters who claim the right, and we don't have the time for me this evening to read it, but go and read it yourself, in the 1661 slave code, where, as I told you, if a black slave assaulted somebody, you know the penalty that I told you. But if a white person assaulted them or killed them, all that was required of them was to pay a fine into the public treasury. And if they were the property of another person, to compensate the owner and to pay the fine into the public treasury. My friends, you can't educate people across the world and ask them not to think and not to reason for themselves. And we see the evidence of it all over the world now with the democratization of news and even fake news, regrettably. And that has therefore meant that more often than not, populations are leading governments. And where governments believe that what they are doing is tolerable, as we are seeing coming out of the Middle East, populations have risen to be able to say that which you are doing cannot be done in my name. I say these things because, as King Charles said, if we don't have the conversation, and if we don't seek to appropriately contextualize apology and appropriately contextualize the repairing of the damage in tangible ways that will remove the cycle of poverty, then we will pay the prices in ways known and unknown in the future. I want us to go back to the same battle report, which came out in June of this year and which informed us that on the basis of standard measurements of damage, one, the loss of life and uncompensated labor, jointly foregone earnings, two, the loss of liberty, three, personal injury, four, mental pain and anguish, five, gender-based violence, of which the whole system was premised on that. <laughs> that on the basis of these standards of damage, they have come up with indicative sums as to what is the scale of the damages if we were to repair without more. And in this, the total scale attributed to Spain 17.1 trillion dollars to Britain 24 
trillion dollars. To France, 9.28 trillion dollars. To the Netherlands, 4.886 trillion dollars. To the US, 26.7 trillion. To Brazil, 4.4 trillion. Significantly, this study did not include those who were in the United Kingdom, but focused on the Caribbean, Central America, South America, North America. In our own case of Barbados, the debt estimated because we were the home of modern racism. That's where it was first institutionalized, on a small rock in the middle of the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean, 166 square miles more or less the size of the Gaza Strip, $4.9 trillion. And in 1625, when the British settlers first landed, they continued without interruption until independence in 1966, and when we became a republic two years ago. These numbers, if taken out of context, can appear to be staggering. But if these numbers are placed in context, not in relation to one year's GDP of a country, but in relation to the total wealth accumulated over the period of time, the numbers are actually minuscule. But what we understand and always understood, and in the year 2000, as a young minister of culture, education, youth, and culture, I had the honor of representing my country in the first preparatory committee for the World Conference Against Racism that was to take place in Durban in 2001. And we went to Chile, and every country in the Americas, I should say, with the exception of Canada and the US, understood the need for reparations, for a financial development package to ensure that the deficit that occurred through centuries could be repaired and that countries could be given a fair chance. We went then to Geneva a few months later, and no one gave us any chance. And the irony was in that week, it was the same week that the Germans were seeking to compensate the Jews for the Holocaust. And there were riots in this country, this time not from Caribbean people, but from Asians. And the rest of the world joined us in solidarity with the exception of Western Europe, the USA, and Canada. I would like to believe that the sequence of events since then and the reality of the clear evidence of institutionalized racism and unconscious bias almost 20 years later would lead to a different narrative. And I want to salute the king for having the courage to understand that this is a conversation whose time has come. Like with everything else, conversations will be difficult and will take time. And we're not expecting that the reparatory damages will be paid in a year or two or five, because the extraction of wealth and the damage took place over centuries. But we are demanding that we be seen, that we be heard, and that we be felt. 
And we do so not because of us alone even, but because in repairing the community as we must, and in repairing the nation as we must, that we recognize that the world needs more and more as a global village to ensure that there is a fairness and a level playing field for as many countries across the globe. We have come to a point in the world's history where there has never been a clearer need for the establishment of global public goods because what happens in the smallest of nations can undermine the quality of life in the largest of nations. As we speak with COP28 continuing behind us, we know more than ever the need to ensure that those who were not the ones who spawned the current crisis ought not to be forced to accumulate debt or to deny their citizens the right to development because of the immediate exigencies of having to repair the damage of the climate crisis. Whether that damage is drought or floods or storms and hurricanes or as niggling and as chronic as sargassum seaweed on coast, preventing those who sell their labor to others wanting to benefit from tourism or restaurants, persons not being able to go there in order to be able to enjoy themselves. This reality is one that requires the majority of the world's population functioning together. And in part and parcel of the repairing of the damage, therefore, it cannot only be at the nation state level. It has to be equally at the global level. It is critical that we have the conversations and recognize that settlement at a developmental level must happen to allow countries to play their own part such that their nations not only can serve the needs of their people, but can also meet the obligations as global citizens. It is equally important that we settle on a mechanism that allows non-state actors, many of whom have access to considerably larger balance sheets than two-thirds of the countries of the world, to be able also to be required to play their part in saving the world. Many of these actors, equally when we investigate, have linkages or anchors or benefits that come out of the same imperial order which caused our own pauperization and decimation. And I ask us today to reflect on the fact that it should not have to take another nine minutes and 29 seconds to cause action to be taken. Morally, it is the right thing to do. Strategically, it is the right thing to do. And why? Because if you accept that Africa will have the great demographic dividend of this century, then one in every four children living on this planet, one in every four adults living on this planet by 2050 will come out of the continent of Africa. If we accept that small countries can cause and do things that can undermine the public health of their citizens and by extension with global air travel can undermine the health of the entire world, then we can't leave ourselves open 
to that possibility by denying them the opportunity to be able to provide the best class of public health that they can to their citizens. And we can't continue to ignore the reality of the digital divide that can't even get off the ground in Africa because 600 million people don't even have access to electricity, far less tablets. We live in a world that if we do not pause and start to address issues of equity and to unravel the points of racism that have continued to keep an imperial order in place, we will suffer the consequences. We cannot talk about repairing the community and repairing the national state without equally talking about repairing the governance mechanisms at the international level. The United Nations cannot continue to have at the core of its Security Council five nations who more reflect an imperial order than it does reflect the diversity of the 193 nations of the world today. <laughs> Similarly, and I want to salute the head of the IMF for agreeing to give Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, a third member on the board. But equally, there needs to be greater levels of representation in all of the international financial institutions that reflect equally the diversity of the world in which we live today. We can talk a lot more, and there's so much more to be read and to be shared. But I am conscious that what I do here this evening, and with the help of Esther, is to cause you to start to think. Because not until then, not until we start to reframe how we see each other, not until we start to demand fairness and equity at the core of our international system, not until we understand that there is only one human race on this planet, and that unless we have, as I say often, a plan to live on Mars, <laughs> which we have not shared with people, <laughs> then we have an obligation to define what is the role of each and every one of us in the greatest battle that humanity must face. Each of us will be required to carry weight, even those who are victims. And that's why the issue of redemption and apology and all of these things need to be put one side, because the world more than ever needs us to act with singular purpose. The world more than ever does not have the luxury of going on pause with the climate crisis because of wars in Europe, the Middle East, or Africa. The world more than ever needs us to be able to rise up and change our behavior. We know without a doubt now that methane will do far more to save us from that dreaded 1.5 degrees and any other single action that we can, for example, in controlling methane, save 80 times the damage that CO2 would give to the earth. But if we are busy not being able to talk with one another and not to work with one another, then we will find that even that will become a bridge too far for us. Not until then, when we see each other. And the words of Haley Selassie, popularized by Bob Marley, not until they are no first class. 
and second-class citizens of the world can we truly put forward the best effort to save humanity. This is not about saving the North Atlantic countries or saving Africa or saving Asia. This is about saving the planet Earth. And not until then will we give ourselves the best chance. It appears to be a small start, considering the facts of history are irrefutable. Considering that the voices who now recognize that the conversation is legitimate are from all sides. And I ask us as we leave this room today to recognize that each of us has a role in legitimizing the conversation to repair the soul, to repair the family, to repair the community and nation, and to repair the international order that has done so much to leave us on our knees. We do not need another 9.29 seconds to rise above and to act as one to save our planet. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. My final poem, not until then, predictably, not until then. The time must come when the tearing in the tapestry of our humanity must be sewn together. When race becomes a long forgotten construct, exposed for its deception, the wreckage it has wrought among the peoples of the world. The time must come when we will hear the groaning of creation, the land, the sky, the sea, and recognize within its echoing plea that its demise and our destruction are inseparable. The time must come when justice cries from every nation, look how the scales are broken under the weight of tyranny and exploitation that our consciences and spirits can no longer bear. When will I rest, child? As my grandmother asks. When the powerful and the powerless, those who have inflicted the wounds and the ones who are still wounded, when all begin to walk the path of restoration, healing, and redemption. Not until then. Not until then. Thank you. Prime Minister Ernesta, thank you very much. Although I think you've shown that calling this a lecture uh, was wrong. You've gifted us something that was much, much more than a lecture, so thank you for that. Uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so for a quick round of questions. You have to promise me that you'll stick to questions. Lady in the front here. <laughs> Yes, hi, Amelia, gentlemen, for The Guardian. I know that you saw David Cameron uh, yesterday, and I wondered whether you raised with him the need for Britain to pay £24 trillion of reparations. Suffice it to say that whatever I raise with him is not for public dissemination. Um, and I say that honestly and sincerely, because I do not believe that by disrespecting others I can achieve 
what it is we want. Suffice it to also say that what must be informed is a public discussion. And that's why I've shared things here today. I don't have the time. If not, I could have given you the stories of how we have done our own reparations in Barbados with the Tenantries Freehold Purchase Act, allowing the children of slaves who live on plantations to benefit from paying for the land at five US cents a square foot, tens of thousands of people. I haven't spoken to you about our free education and free primary health care to others long before there was sustainable development goals. This was our reparation to our people. And I think that Mr. Cameron and others who um, from the United Kingdom well know that Barbados has not reached where it has reached without deliberately undertaking those reparations. But similarly, that you can't have a global conversation without acknowledging the past. So I'm not going to get into the details of our conversation, which was very wide, but suffice it to say that I think the Foreign Secretary will take his lead, I hope, from His Majesty. Simon. Prime Minister, Lord, Lord Wally speaking. When, when did you realize that you had become a, a global role model? Good role model in a short question. Thank you, Simon. I haven't. <laughs> short answer. Very good role model. Yes. Hello, Prime Minister. I'm a master's student uh, majoring in human rights here at LSE. Um, I was thoroughly moved by your speech. Uh, thank you so much. So I'm very curious to know here, uh, know your thoughts on this question. Um, I was there with you uh, in wanting to change the global imperial order until you mentioned that you were glad that Africa got a representation in IMF. IMF is another imperialist agency from the West that forces countries to privatize cost-cutting, abolishing social welfare programs, and so on. So I'm curious to know why you would well, say that. Let me a share a little secret with you. <laughs> when we became the government in 2018, our country was the third most indebted country in the world on debt to GDP per capita after Japan and Greece. And within one week of coming to office, we did not have a choice but to go to the IMF because we were spending 68 cents in every dollar in debt service. And everything had literally, we could not borrow from anyone for five years before. And indeed, the printing of money went to extraordinary levels. Under the same IMF, we restored free tertiary education to every Barbadian. Under the same IMF program, we bought buses that had not been bought for 13 years and refleeted the entire sanitation service authority so that garbage could be collected. Under the same IMF, we immediately, within two weeks of coming to office, gave a 5% salary increase. Under the same IMF, we built out a new accident and emergency division of the hospital, which if we did not have it when COVID came, we would not have been able to treat the numbers of people that we treated without compromising the safety of the entire hospital. Under the same IMF, we took an abandoned naval facility by the Americans that had been abandoned 50 years before, and we built a modern hospital with four to five times the number of ICU beds that we had had for 55 years. Under the same IMF last year, we gave the second salary increase for public servants. Um, and I can go on and on. The message that I'm sending you is that just because an entity behaved one way in the past 
we need to go back to its fundamentals, which was to preserve macroeconomic stability and financial stability. And our country chose to develop a homegrown program that mirrored what our needs were, because Barbados has a high, high commitment to the generation of social capital. And mercifully, we have been able to do that while at the same time bringing our debt down. Now, we have disagreements. We don't feel that the debt sustainability metrics that are used today should continue to be used in a polycrisis moment. That I can lose weight at 10 pounds a month, 8 pounds a month, 4 pounds a month. The important thing is that I'm losing weight. If I allow the body politic to suffer, then I, could, I am at risk of losing the capacity to continue, just as the human organism will. At the same time, we don't believe that they should continue to be charging surcharges, particularly as interest rates have gone up. The same IMF, however, was the only entity in the COVID environment that stepped up and provided rapid disbursement funds to all countries globally, but secondly, also did it in a way through the establishment of the Resilience and Sustainability Trust as a part of the Bridgetown Initiative when we settled it 18 months ago. We called on the provision of long-term funding to be able to allow countries the opportunity to build resilience. Coming out of that, the same IMF was the one who stepped up to the plate and gave us 20-year money with a 10-and-a-half-year moratorium with interest rates that are low. So I hope that that helps give you a perspective. <laughs> and I'm not here... I'm not here to defend him. I, well, I, I think you did a better job than Kristalina would have. <laughs> no, but I don't think so. I've got so. a question here from and then we'll Hi, try to go uh, Tom Henry, I'm a student at LSE as well. Um, I was just wondering whether you think that the Bridgetown agenda in calling for loss and damage through mainly increased finance sometimes fails to address more broader structural inequalities within the international financial system, such as, and, and, and this is also related and to, to low capital controls on, 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 on international finance that increases vulnerability towards uh, dollar-denominated dollar debt. Thank and you I've very got much. One more in the back, bit, and then we'll close with that. I think okay, I'm, I'm not sure they got his question, oh. that's the truth. Hi everyone, um, I'm Elizabeth um, and, and Prime Minister um, Mia. It's an honour uh, to share space with you. Um, Thank you. I'm gonna, I've got two questions, but I'm going to merge it into one if that's okay. Really quickly merge. Okay, extremely quickly. So we are living in a, a, a time of, uh, I guess, a, as you mentioned, the poly crisis. So what are the business models? What business models do we need to create so that we can thrive on a cultural but also economic level at a global scale? So, you know, what do we need to inspire the next generation of sort of innovators and change makers that need to start thinking about these poly crises and what are those business well, models that we the, need to The create? truth is that the climate crisis presents us with the greatest opportunity for new business. Um, in the just transition, we're going to find all kinds of opportunities for all kinds of people, particularly in the area of energy, but not restricted to energy alone. And we have to change almost all of our behavior. And, and what I've been trying to suggest, look, and, and this comes back in a sense to your question on loss and damage, because first of all, I'm very happy that the loss and damage fund was created. I'm very happy that we've started the capitalization of it. But we're at 720 million, and your own Lord Stern, Nick Stern, has, along with Vera Song, we said to us, look, you need $300 billion a year if we are going to be equal to the needs of loss and damage that we're likely to see globally. 
I want us, therefore, to recognize when I say that everyone has a role to play, that we're going to have to change how we address transport. We're going to have to change how we farm if we're going to control methane increases in the atmosphere. We're going to have to change how we eat. We're going to have to change almost every aspect of our life. But we have to do so in a way that is still enjoyable and still sustainable. And that requires conversations according to different cultures. People's um, threshold level and level for what they will tolerate is different. So, but each of them has potential economic impact because it rises out of the sale of goods or services um, and plant and equipment. I want to just address this very quickly, please, because we could be at risk of not meeting the demands but having excited expectations. And that is why I believe that nothing short of a fundamental rethink of how we utilize taxation, contributions, burden sharing is critical. When I spoke about what we did in Barbados, we had a simple mantra in 2018, which we continued, share the burden, share the bounty. Very simple. The world needs to share the burden of the adjustment to the planet for the planet's survival. And just as we will require farmers to farm differently for livestock and rice paddies, just as we must have different practices in how we handle waste management to control methane, just as we will have to call on oil and gas to control leaks and stop flaring to help with methane, we need also to start looking at how we're going to capitalize in a real and sustainable way. There is $7 trillion in value for global goods being shipped annually and growing. 1% stamp duty is 70 billion. We're at 720 million with loss and damage now. We have just about 4 billion people who travel domestically or internationally. And I say so as a country that has a tourism foundation. But the reality is, will you pay $5 to save the planet when you travel domestically? And will you pay $10 when you travel internationally to save the planet? And if we start to frame this in terms of burden sharing across all persons conducting specific activities, then we have a better chance of getting there. Not that we are letting governments off at all, but the reality is that the scale of the problem and the lateness of the problem requires a complete rethink. The bottom line is that oil and gas companies made four trillion in profits last year. Will they agree to walk away with 95%, 3.8 trillion, and leave 200 billion on the table every year? 5% of their profits every year will not stop them from making money or bankrupting them in any sense or fashion. Financial sector, there is no sector across the world that can live without finance. The problem is, is that when we put a charge on finance, a 0.1% perhaps, of financial services tax, will lead to 420 billion a year. But all can't go to loss and damage or even climate because we have pandemics that we have to prepare for. The slow motion pandemic that is already killing the third largest number of people in the world, five million, because we are resistant now to antibiotics, antimicrobial resistance. And it's gonna kill the most people by 2050. Are we therefore prepared to leave some of that financial services to cover pandemic, to cover climate, to cover victims of war, to cover food and water insecurity, and to cover the digital divide? And these are the conversations, and do we locate it within the World Bank, recognizing that that World Bank, if it was being formed today, 
would not be for the purposes that it was formed after World War II and in the manner in which it was formed. And it needs now to be equal, not just to the elimination of poverty and the promotion of prosperity, but it must protect the world with respect to global public goods. And this is not my view. This is a view that has been canvassed by some for a while. But because it is unsexy and because we live in a world that's driven by 60-second song bites and four-column inches, we're not having the conversations that, in fact, can save the world. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, most, of us, most of us could spend the whole night talking to you, but I'm afraid we can't. And I wanted to say thank you for, to both you, Prime Minister and Esther, for inspiring us and challenging us in equal measure and you know and uh, on behalf of all my colleagues uh, at Oxford, is, no 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 huh? i know i know Paul rank as a lse alumna the truth is that the last time i came last time a barbados prime minister i think spoke at london school of economics was when i was a student here and it was tom adams and i remember being in the audience like many of you and it was just after the grenada invasion and therefore you can imagine what the room and the atmosphere was like. I am thankful that I will walk out without what happened to him happening to me. <laughs> well, uh, we've still got I, two I, minutes. I, 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 only because I think he may have also made some comments on the Falkland Wars. So no, we don't have two minutes. We're going to leave now. <laughs> All right. Let me... Um... Let me just say... Hey, sorry, it was only a stick bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, first of all, thank you to Danny and to Oxford for organizing the event with us and for moderating. Yes, thank the, you. Esther, your poems are a rare example of incredibly grave contents and substance, but incredible beauty thank of you. its poetry. Absolutely. Only surpassed by the beauty of your articulation uh, of them. I thought that they were incredible. Mr. President, you now understand why I insisted with Danny that this lecture needed to be shared because our story has to be told and the conspiracy of silence broken. Indeed. Thank you. Mia, we have many presidents and prime ministers, both serving and former passing through LSE and giving lectures. I think I can say in all sincerity, rarely have we heard something this significant and of this impact as tonight. I think we should all feel very privileged to have been here tonight and have listened to you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.